What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus? That's one of the most important questions to find the right answer to, because there's a lot of different false ideas that seek to answer the question, who is Jesus? But the the place to find the right answer uh, is in the Word of God. And one of the main purposes of John's Gospel is to give us that right answer to the question, who is Jesus? And the right answer to that question is, Jesus is God. He's the Savior of the world. Now, now, so far in John's Gospel, John has used two main things to declare and help prove this reality that Jesus is God. If you remember back in chapter 1, John brought forth four different witnesses, eyewitnesses to who Jesus is, that He is God. John the Baptist testified that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, the, the Son of God. Andrew testified that Jesus is the Messiah. Philip testified that Jesus is the one prophesied in the Old Testament to come. Nathaniel testified that Jesus Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Israel. So the first thing John uses are these eyewitness testimonies to prove that Jesus is God. And the second thing that John uses are signs or or miracles that Jesus himself performed that show that he is God. And John's highlighting through this gospel seven specific signs. He starts with Jesus turning water into wine, and then he goes to Jesus healing the nobleman's son by, by just his words. The nobleman's son was, you know, far from where Jesus was. He just speaks and he is healed. And the last time we were in John's gospel at the beginning of chapter five, we see Jesus doing another miracle, another thing that would show people that he truly is God. He heals the man who had an infirmity for 38 years sitting by the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus comes and meets that man and he heals him and makes him whole. Now, this miracle, this sign, you know, it should have caused people to believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus obviously has this supernatural, miraculous power because of who he is, that he's God. But unfortunately, we're going to see, instead of causing people to realize Jesus is God, it's going to cause the religious leaders to attack Jesus and want to kill him. So what we're going to look at this morning in the rest of John chapter 5 is kind of like a, a courtroom drama scene. We have the religious leaders that are seeking to kind of put Jesus on trial. They're accusing Jesus of two specific things that they feel that he has done that break the law. But the great thing about what we're going to look at this morning is oftentimes the, the religious leaders attack Jesus and he didn't have anything to say, but... This morning, we're going to see that Jesus responds. He's going to defend himself against these two false accusations that he broke the law of God. And in Jesus' defense, we're going to see that he makes six powerful claims about 
himself. And each one of these claims are claims to his deity, claims that he is God. And he's also going to share with us five different witnesses to testify to the fact that he truly is God, that these claims that he are make, that he's making is true. Now, as we look at what Jesus says in his defense, I want each one of us here this morning to be the jury. I want you to, to weigh the evidence of the six things that Jesus says about himself. I want you to weigh the evidence of the testimonies that Jesus calls for, the eyewitnesses that Jesus used to support his evidence. And when we're done, I want you to think of the verdict that you would give. If you were a juror and you listened to Jesus share all these things, what would be your conclusion? Is he who he claims to be, or is he who the Pharisees and religious leaders claim him to be? Having the right answer to the question, who is Jesus, is a matter of life and death. You see, if you get the answer wrong, it has eternal consequences. Now, for those of you who already are personally convinced that Jesus is God, you know, what we're going to look at this morning is a great passage to understand and then to share. You know, hopefully as you see Jesus' own defense about his deity, you can use that to communicate to others as you want to communicate to them. Hey, Jesus is God. He is the Savior. And you can remind yourself of what we're going to look at here in John chapter 5 to help answer the question for others, who is Jesus? Because people hear all sorts of different responses, different answers, and we want to share with them the true answer that comes from Scripture. And another thing that this passage does, if you've ever heard someone say, well, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Take them here to John chapter 5, and you're going to see that Jesus clearly claims to be God. Now, the last thing that we saw Jesus do here in John chapter 5 is He heals this man that had this infirmity for 38 years by the pool of Bethesda. So the question we have to ask ourselves is how in the world does healing this man, does doing this miracle lead to this trial, so to speak, this, this attack from the religious leaders against Jesus? How do they see a miracle, a healing, and then want to attack Jesus, want to try to ultimately seek that he would die? Well, it all starts because of the day in which Jesus did the things that he did. That's the key, the key to these attacks. So let's remind ourselves of verses 8 and 9 that we left off with last week. And at the very end of verse 9, we're given the key to why there's so much problems with the religious leaders in Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, and it says this, Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. This is the key. The day that Jesus chose to heal this man, the day that Jesus told to, chose to tell this man, I want you to rise up, take up your bed, and walk, it was the Sabbath day. Now, in Exodus chapter 20, God gave a command about the Sabbath. And the command goes like this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of your Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger. 
Now, this, this command was established by God because he wanted everyone, whether you were a servant or a king, whether you were the highest in status or the lowest in status, to have a day of rest every single week. It was a command that God gave as a blessing to all the nation of Israel. I want everyone, no matter what you are, if you're a servant or not, to have a day of rest. So you should not work. You should get the freedom to be resting on that day. But most of the Jews in Jesus' time had, had little idea of the original purpose of the Sabbath or the original intent that God had in blessing the nation with it. And the reason that they didn't understand it is because the scribes and the Pharisees, they took this good commandment and they added hundreds and hundreds of added rules and regulations that they put onto this commandment. And so now the blessing that it should have been to give people a day of rest was now this curse that people were constantly worried, oh, have I done this little thing or that little thing to break the Sabbath? You see, the scribes and Pharisees looked at the law, you shall not work on the Sabbath, and they wanted to define, well, what does it mean to work? And so they came up with the things that you can do that wouldn't be considered work, and they came up with things that you can't do that would be considered work. And there's a huge list, and a lot of it is really silly things, but one of the things that they spent a lot of time in, in focusing on is what you can carry. Because obviously the heavier the thing that you carry, the, the more work it would be. And so most of the things that you could carry you know, were, were outlawed. They would say, well, no, that's work, and therefore you, you can't do it on the Sabbath. And one of the things on that list of things that you're not allowed to carry would be a bed, or, or more specifically, kind of a rolled-up cot. Now, the reason that that is significant is, remember, Jesus just healed a man who's laying on this little rolled-up cot. He's been on this thing for 38 years, and Jesus says, rise... Take up that bed that you've been laying on and walk. Now, taking that up, walking with it, according to the added things that the religious leaders had put on the Sabbath, that would have been, in their mind, breaking the Sabbath. How dare you carry your cot? And so this is something important to understand. But, but another thing important to understand is that these added rules and regulations are just this. They added them. This wasn't what God had determined. This is what God had said. So in breaking any of these added things, you're not breaking the law of God. You're just breaking the traditions of man, the traditions of these religious leaders. So Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath, a man who's been not able to walk for 38 years. Tells him, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, I'm sure for a man who hasn't walked for 38 years, I mean, he's jumping for joy. This must have been just one of the, the greatest experiences of his life. And he's, you know, going around and I'm sure so many people recognize, hey, this is a guy who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. And here he is. He's not only walking, he's leaping, he's running around. And he's also carrying his little cot. Now, you would assume the first thing that people would think and notice is, how in the world is this guy walking? You know, what's happened? How has he gone from not being able to walk for 38 years to now standing in front of me? You know, that should have been the first thing that blows their mind of how is this possible? What happened to, to enable you to do this? That's what you would think would be the first thing that would cross someone's mind, but that's not the first thing that the religious leaders think about. It's not the first thing that they notice about this man who has just been healed. Notice the first thing that they notice starting in verse 10. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. 
He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. So here's this man just full of excitement, walking for the first time in 38 years, carrying his cot. He comes across some of these religious leaders and notice the question. Notice what they see. Notice what they say to them, him. It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. They don't see the man who's just been made whole. They don't look at the miracle. They're not blown away by how in the world are you walking? All they see is you're breaking our tradition. What are you doing carrying your bed? Well, now he's kind of like, oh, well, well, now he, he wants to respond. So he says, hey, the person who did this for me, who healed me, he told me to take up my bed and walk. And so now the religious leader's anger and fury is not so much directed at this man anymore. It's directed at the person who would dare tell this man to break their Sabbath tradition. So they ask, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, once again, this is just so shocking. This guy just tells him, somebody just healed me. I've been this way for 38 years and I've just been miraculously healed. And notice that their question isn't, who healed you? Who has the power to do that? Who brought you and made you whole? All they care about is who in the world would dare tell you to take up your bed and walk on the Sabbath? Who would tell you to break our tradition on the Sabbath? We want to know his name. Well, we don't care that he's a miracle worker. We don't care that he's made you whole. All we care about is that he's broken our tradition. This shares with us so much of the problem with the religious leaders, so much of the lack of love for people and blindness to their own traditions. Well, the man doesn't know the answer to the question. Remember, Jesus came to him. He didn't come to Jesus. He didn't know who Jesus was. He probably didn't even know Jesus' name. Jesus just comes and heals him, and now he's, he's off, and he's excited. And they're like, well, who did this? Well, I, I don't know. And now he's looking around the crowd. Maybe I'll see the face of the man who did this, but we're told that Jesus withdrew himself. So now he can't even see Jesus. He doesn't know who did this. And he's kind of left with, well, someone told me to carry my bed. That's why I'm doing it. Well, now notice what happens in verse 14 and 15. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Notice now for a second time, and I love this about Jesus, he initially comes to this man, this man who's in need, and he comes and meets that man's need. And now once again, Jesus initiates this relationship, this contact. He comes and meets this man again, but now he's coming with a warning. A warning for this man, he's just made whole, he's just given the ability to walk again after 38 years. And notice what Jesus says to him. He says, see You have been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. You know, Jesus is revealing something quite interesting here. That the infirmity that this man had for the last 38 years was a direct cause of his own sin. And this is something important for us to take note of. But before we do, I want you to realize this is not the case all the time. It's not that, okay, anyone who has some kind of disease like cancer or anyone who has been born, you know, lame or blind or some, it must be some kind of sin. We're actually going to see later on in John that the disciples ask Jesus when they see a man blind, you know, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. 
That's not why he's blind. It has nothing to do with sin. But in this guy's situation, it does. And so we need to recognize that there are things that we can experience. Disease, infirmities, that are a direct result to sinful behavior. For example, there are many people today who have sexually transmitted diseases. Why? Because they have sinned. They have broken God's command to have sex outside of the marriage covenant relationship, and now they're suffering the consequence of that. So that disease that they have is a direct result of sinful behavior that they've made. There are people with all sorts of infirmities because they abuse drugs. It's messing up their body, and that's the reason why that's there. I know a person who is paralyzed from the waist down because he got drunk and drove and got in an accident. He is in that situation because of his own sinful behavior. So there is a reality that there are people who suffer like this man because of sinful choices that they made. And we don't know what his infirmity was and we don't know what his sin was, but we do know that Jesus is saying, it's what brought you to this place. You spent 38 years not being able to walk because of something you chose to do. And now I've made you whole and I want to give you a warning a very important warning. You've been made well, so sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And what an important warning for this man and for us to understand. Jesus is saying, hey, you've, you've suffered 38 years because of a sinful choice you made. This is a, a result of that. You now have a second chance. I've now given you the ability to walk again. I've now made you whole. Don't go back to that. Sin no more, lest something worse come. And this is the reality. If you choose to go back to that sinful lifestyle again, something worse can come into your life. The consequences will just get worse. And I think that's something important for us to realize is we have those choices and we come to Jesus and he gives us forgiveness and he offers wholeness to us. But he says, you know what? If you go back to a sinful lifestyle, understand there are greater consequences that continue to come. The warning is important for us. Well, notice what this man does. Maybe it kind of shows the kind of man that he is. So now he knows who it is. Jesus has come to him. He realizes, oh, this is Jesus who healed me. And notice the first thing he does after he finds out the man who changed his life. The man departed and told the Jews it was Jesus who made him well. So this either shows two different things about this man, that he's a pretty messed up sinful guy, that the first thing he does when he finds out who healed him is he goes and tells the religious leaders, hey, it was Jesus who did it, go get Jesus, because remember, they're mad. Who told you to take up your bed on the Sabbath? We want to know. We're going to confront this guy. And so here's a guy who's been, you know, lame for 38 years. Finally, someone heals him, and he goes, rats the guy out to the religious leaders. So that either shows the kind of man he is, or it shows the kind of intimidation and fear that the religious leaders had over people. That this guy was so afraid of them and their influence and what they could do to him that he's like, you know what, it was Jesus who did this. Or maybe it's a little bit of both. But either way, now the religious leaders know it's Jesus. Jesus healed this guy on the Sabbath. And Jesus, in their mind, had the audacity to tell this man to take up his bed on the Sabbath. Well, let's see how the religious leaders respond to that news in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Look at that response. I mean, you broke our tradition. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to persecute you and we are going to seek to kill you. We believe you deserve in the trial mindset that we have here, the death penalty. Jesus, that's what you deserve for breaking our tradition, for healing a man on the Sabbath and telling him to carry his bed. You deserve 
to die. So the religious leaders are bringing an accusation against Jesus. You are guilty of breaking the Sabbath law. And we are seeking the death penalty. Let's see how Jesus responds to this accusation of of breaking the Sabbath law in verse 17 and 18. But Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill Him, because not only He broke the Sabbath, but He also said that God was His Father, making Himself equal with God. This is the first claim that Jesus makes about himself. He says, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. This is Jesus's answer to their accusation that you have broken the Sabbath. How dare you? You're guilty. And Jesus' response to the accusation that that I'm guilty of breaking the Sabbath is to say, my father's been working until now, and I have been working. Now, notice Jesus doesn't try to explain that he actually hasn't been working on the Sabbath, that you know they have just added this stuff to God's law, and what they've added is not really God's intention. There are other portions of Scripture where Jesus gets into that kind of you know debate and, and helps them see that, you know, that's not, we didn't break the Sabbath law at all. Jesus doesn't go into that. He could, because he wasn't guilty. He could have kind of used that argument. Instead, he does something very different and, and quite interesting. He boldly explains, My father works on the Sabbath, and therefore as his son, I also work on the Sabbath. You see, Jesus is declaring that God the Father, he doesn't take off the Sabbath. He continues to work. God is responsible for sustaining the universe. And guess what? He sustains the universe not just six days a week, but seven. That seventh day, that the Sabbath day, God doesn't stop. He continues to work. He continues to sustain life. He continues to bring rain. He continues to do what He does in people's lives. He doesn't take a break. And Jesus is saying, just like the Father continues to work, so I, the Son, continue to work as well. Now, Jesus saying, my Father was a clear declaration of the kind of relationship that he had with God. Something that the Jews wouldn't have personally said in this way. Leon Morris wrote this, Jesus was claiming that God was his Father in a special sense. He was claiming that he partook of the same nature as his Father. This involved equality. Now, we can understand from the response of the religious leaders that they completely understood what Jesus meant when he said, my father. Because notice what we're told, how they respond when Jesus makes this claim. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, which was their first thing, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. See, the religious leaders didn't miss this. They understand when you say my father, you're saying you are equal to God. And so now we have two reasons to try to kill you. First is because we believe you broke the Sabbath by healing a guy and telling him to take up his bed. But now we have a far worse accusation against you. We have an accusation that you are claiming to be God when you're not. That's what they believed. They didn't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe he is the Messiah that they have been waiting for. And so... They're quite upset. My father has been working until now, and I have been working. 
Notice that Jesus, when he says, my father, that, that's more of a, a general statement of equality. But now he's going to continue. And all these six things that he's going to share, he's going to get specific on how he's equal with God. And here, as he says, my father's been working and I have been working. He's associating the work of God and his work and making them one. We're equal in our work. And so the first claim that Jesus makes about himself is that he is equal with God in his works. And the fact that he just healed this man by divine supernatural power should have been pretty clear of that. Hey, uh, God's working, I'm working, we both have the same power, we're both doing these things. Well, after this claim from Jesus, the religious leaders are now really wanting to kill him. You are now guilty of breaking two different laws according to them. And we want your death. Well... As I said at the beginning, Jesus is going to continue to defend himself. He's not just going to let them make these accusations without saying anything. Yes, I am equal to God. And let me go on to share another five powerful claims about myself so that you can understand who I am. The second claim that Jesus makes about himself is in verse 19 and also in verse 30. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Notice in both of these verses, Jesus reveals that the Son can do nothing of himself. What he sees the Father do, that's what the Son does. What he hears the Father do, that is what the Son does. Jesus is making a direct link to himself and God the Father. He's showing that there is a connection, that they are equal. And notice what Jesus says, Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. What Jesus is sharing here in this statement is that his will and the will of the Father are the same. That they're equal. The second claim that Jesus makes about himself is that he is equal with God in his will. You see, the will of God the Father and the will of God the Son, they're the same. They're connected. And that's why Jesus says, I can do nothing of myself. Why? Because my will's connected to the Father. And so what I do and what I will is what he wills. And they're intertwined because we're equal. So first, Jesus is equal with God in his works. Second, he's equal with God, the Father, in his will. The third claim that Jesus makes about himself is in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Jesus starts once again making this wonderful claim about his relationship with God. He started back in verse 17 of my Father, demonstrating that intimate relationship. And now he takes it a step further and and reveals that, hey, the Father loves the Son. The Father loves me. And notice what Jesus says the Father does for him. The Father shows Jesus all things that he himself does, and he will show Jesus greater works than these that you may marvel. When Jesus says that the Father shows him all things that he himself does, Jesus is saying there's no secrets between myself and the Father. We both have all the same knowledge. Whatever the Father knows, I know. Uh, Our knowledge is equal 
to one another. The third claim that Jesus makes about himself is that he is equal with God in his knowledge. You see, God knows, or Jesus knows all the things that the Father knows because of this wonderful reality. They're equal in knowledge. So Jesus is equal in his works, in his will, in his knowledge with God the Father. The fourth claim that Jesus makes about himself is in verse 21 and in verses 24 through 26. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Notice here, Jesus clearly links God the Father's power to do two amazing things, to raise the dead and to give life. He links that to himself, that he has the power to do those two things as well. Now, for the religious leaders, they would have clearly only associated the power to rise people from the dead and give life with God. And so Jesus making this claim is a complete claim in their eyes of equality to God, that I say I am God by making this statement. As the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He will. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. Jesus is declaring, just like the Father has life in Himself, and he is able to give life to whom he will. Jesus has life in himself, and he is able to give life to whom he will. And then he goes on to tell them something very important. Who it is he gives life to. Why Jesus is willing to grant life to people. What's the, the requirement for that? Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus says the only way to receive life is to hear his words and believe in him who sent me. You know, often when Jesus taught, he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. The problem with the religious leaders is they didn't listen to Jesus. They didn't really hear him. They didn't believe in what he declared about who he was. And that's a huge problem. Because it's hearing him and believing in that that's the only way to receive the life that he offers. And you know what? It's even sadder. But Jesus is making this claim, and he's making this claim prior to raising anyone from the dead. And so you can see how skeptical they might be. Oh, you have the power to rise people from the dead. Yeah, sure you do, Jesus. But you know what? After Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, which they would stand back and be able to say, what he said's true. Remember when he said he had power over the death? Power to give life? I mean, here it is. He just did it with Lazarus. But they still don't believe, even when that de demonstration of power is so clear. The fourth claim that Jesus makes about himself that he's equal with God in his ability to impart life and to raise the dead. Jesus not only gives life, he is life. And because he is life, 
He can give life. And He gives life and parts it to those who believe in Him. Believe in who He is. Believe in what He's done. So Jesus is equal in works, in will, in knowledge, in His ability to impart life and raise the dead. The fifth claim that Jesus makes about Himself is in verse 22 and 27 through 29. It says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, and has given Him authority to execute judgment also, because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Here Jesus is making a claim that, you know what? I have something that even God the Father doesn't do. Notice what he says. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. This is something uniquely granted to the second part of the Trinity, Jesus himself. So often people think, oh, when I die, I'm, I'm going to face the Father. Well, actually, that's not true. The one who's going to judge you is Jesus himself. You're going to stand before him. He's going to sit on a great white throne and he is going to be the one that you will face. And he actually speaks of this future judgment. Notice what he says. He says, don't marvel at this. Speaking of the fact that, that he is the one who's going to judge. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Don't marvel. There's a time in the future that's coming when everybody who has died, who's in the grave, they're going to come and they're going to stand before me. Now, Revelation chapter 20 speaks about this event where Jesus is going to stand and everyone is going to be before him. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It is Jesus who's the one who's sitting on that great white throne. Jesus is the one who is going to judge the world. So the fifth claim that Jesus makes about himself is he is equal to God in his authority to judge. Jesus has made a great claim. He will give life eternally to those who hear him and believe him. But he also wants you to understand there's the opposite as well. For those who reject him, he will give eternal condemnation in hell. He is both the life giver and the judge. And you must place your trust in him to avoid his judgment. So Jesus is equal in works, in will, in knowledge, in his ability to impart life and raise the dead, and his ability to judge. And he has one more bold statement about himself in verse 23. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Here Jesus says that everyone should honor Him in the same way that they honor God the Father. 
And once again, this would be a clear demonstration of him saying, I am God. Because anyone who were to say, you should honor me at the same level that you honor God, if they're not God, they're breaking the first commandment. And this is what the, the Jews thought of Jesus, the religious leaders. That's why they wanted to kill him. Blasphemy. How dare you make yourself equal with God? Because they realize if you claim that you should be honored like God the Father is honored, there's only one who should be honored like that, and that is God himself. And so unless you're God, you better not make that claim. Well, Jesus is saying, well, that's why I am making that claim. Because I am God, and therefore I deserve the same honor that the Father receives. But notice Jesus goes on to say something else very important. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And this is a huge dilemma for the religious leaders. Because you know what? They're thinking, I don't need to honor you, Jesus. I'll honor God. That's the only one, the Father. That's the one I'll honor. And he'll receive my honor and it'll be great. But Jesus say, no, it doesn't work that way. If you're not willing to honor me, then you're not showing honor to the Father who sent me. You can't just try to ignore me and think that you can honor the Father at the same time. No, you have to honor both of us because a denial of Jesus is a lack of honor to the Father who sent Him to this earth to live that perfect life and die for our sins. The sixth claim that Jesus makes about Himself is that He is equal with God in His honor. Now, these six claims that Jesus is making here, it demonstrates an equality with God. It demonstrates that in his works, his will, his knowledge, his ability to impart life, raise the dead, authority to judge, he's honor, he's claiming a clear deity. I am God. I want to make it real clear. All six of these areas, I am equal with God. Why? Because I am God. Now, Jesus understands the religious leaders aren't just going to believe the things that he says just because he says it. Hey, you should just believe me because I tell you it's true. I recognize you. You're not just going to believe my witness. And so I'm going to give you five other witnesses that testify to what I just told you being true. That these six things that I claim about myself are true based on the witnesses that I'm going to bring before you. But before he brings these different witnesses... He wants to make really clear, I'm not just bearing witness of myself. Notice what he says in verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. You know, in a court of law, if your defense is only your witness about yourself, you're in trouble. If you're the only one who is claiming the things about yourself and you don't have any other eyewitnesses that support that, then your, your case is going to be weak. The more witnesses that you can call to the stand that can testify about you and about whatever it is that you know, you're you know, trying to bring out, the better your case will be. And so Jesus is saying, hey, if I'm the only one witnessing of myself, my witness isn't true. You shouldn't listen to me. If it's just me saying this, I understand. Don't buy into it. But it's not just me. I'm going to give you five others. And there's more witnesses than this. John's already brought up several in chapter one. He's just saying, here's five. And these are ones that I hope you would listen to. I hope you would believe. The first witness, the most important witness, verse 32, 37, and 38. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witness of me is true. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent... Him you do not believe. 
Jesus' first witnesses that he calls to the stand, the most important of all, is God the Father. The Father has testified of Jesus. He actually audibly testified of Jesus for people to hear it. If you remember back at Jesus' baptism, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. People heard the voice from heaven. The Father actually declaring who Jesus is. Jesus is saying, hey, here's the testimony I have. I have the testimony of the Father. And he should just be able to stop right there. I mean, if you've got the testimony of God the Father, you don't need any other testimony beyond that. But unfortunately, the witness of the Father doesn't move these religious leaders. Why? Because they do not have God's word abiding in them, because whom God sent, him they do not believe. This is the problem that they have. You know, the Father's testimony should be clear and evident, and they should believe in Jesus who God sent, but they don't, because... They don't know His Word and know who He is. So first, the witness that Jesus calls is God the Father. The second witness Jesus calls to the stand is in verses 33-35. through 35. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in His light." The second witness that Jesus calls to the stand is John the Baptist. And Jesus says, hey, uh, John has borne witness to the truth. John knows the truth of who I am. He knows that I am God. And we saw that in chapter 1. As John looks at Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John revealed that, you know, the Father told me that the person that I baptize and whom the Spirit of God descends upon, that is the Messiah. That is the Son of God. And so John was that eyewitness. He knew the truth of who Jesus was. But notice Jesus says, I don't need to receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Jesus didn't need the testimony of John the Baptist. He didn't need the testimony of man. He's not sharing this to, for his own benefit. He's sharing this for the benefit of the religious leaders. I'm saying this to you that you might believe and be saved. You see, Jesus knew that John the Baptist was the burning and shining lamp, and the religious leaders were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. And he's saying, hey, I'll use John the Baptist who knew who I was because you guys respected him. You guys rejoiced in his light for a time. Once he started pointing to me, that changed. But So I'll use him because my goal is that you would believe and be saved. And that's the goal of Jesus in all of this. He's making these claims. He's bringing these witnesses forth. Why? He wants these people who are listening to come to the truth of who he is and be saved. He's not just arguing this for the sake of argument. He wants them to understand that He is God, that He's the only way for them to be saved, and He's desperate for them to believe that. Well, now Jesus calls His third witness to the stand in verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has set me. Jesus' third witness is his own works. So now Jesus' defense kind of moves from a, a verbal defense to a visual defense. My works here are exhibit A. All you got to do is look at what I've done. And John's only recorded a little bit. You know, water to wine there in Jerusalem. He heals a multitude of people. We have, you know, the nobleman's son who's healed from a distance. We have this man who was paralyzed or infirm for 38 years. He's healed. But Jesus has done more healing than this. 
But he's saying, hey, my works, what I've done and what I'm going to continue to do are one of the greatest testimonies of the fact of who I am. Only God has the power to do what I'm going to do. When I raise Lazarus from the dead, you're going to see that. But even more important, the most miraculous one of all, I'm going to raise myself from the dead. And all of these things that I do are a powerful testimony of the fact that I am who I claim to be God. Well, now Jesus is going to call his fourth witness to the stand in verses 39 through 44. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come to my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Jesus' fourth witness that he calls to the stand are the Scriptures themselves. Now, Jesus starts with a compliment to the religious leaders. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. What's well, a good thing to search the scriptures? Because guess what? You and I wouldn't know how to receive eternal life apart from them. It is what reveals to us. It is the, the source of knowledge that, that helps us to know how we receive eternal life. So searching the scriptures to find that, that's a good thing. The problem with the religious leaders wasn't that they searched the scriptures. Their problem was they didn't see the truth of the fact that Jesus is the source of eternal life. They came to it looking for it, but they missed the obvious reality of all that the Scripture said and pointed to Jesus. It shows they don't know the Scriptures. They didn't really understand the Scriptures. You know, the Scriptures are one of the most powerful witnesses of Jesus' deity. There are 315 Old Testament prophecies specifically about the coming Messiah, about Jesus Christ Himself, and He fulfilled all of them. That's a powerful, powerful witness of the fact of who He is. And these men, who are meant to be scholars of the Old Testament, they should have been the first in line to say, we recognize who you are. We see that you have fulfilled this prophecy and that prophecy and that prophecy and that prophecy. We're the ones who know that you're the Messiah and we come to you for life. But they didn't. They searched the Scriptures blindly. They were more concerned about their own traditions and own things that they added to it and missed the clear, obvious truths that were there, pointing them to the Messiah, Jesus. Well, Jesus reveals three th sad things about these religious leaders. First, He says, I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. And this is our problem. You know what? They searched the Scriptures, but they never really came into a relationship of the God of the Scriptures. You can read it all day, you all, all the time you want, but until you come into that personal relationship with God, it's not going to change your life. And that's the thing. Hey, you, you read, you study, but there's no love in you. And this is one of their biggest problems. They don't love God. They don't love others because they don't have that true relationship with God. They're just religious people, but not those in a relationship with God. Second, Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. I've come, the testimony of my Father, I've come in his name, but you're not willing to receive me. But then Jesus is speaking of a future event. There's going to be someone that's going to come in his own name. 
and him you will receive. Jesus is speaking of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to come in his own name, and we're told in the book of Revelation that, yes, the nation of Israel, they're going to accept and believe in this false Messiah. The one who comes in his own name, you'll believe, but the true one, you won't. A sad statement for them. Third, Jesus says, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? This is the fatal error of the religious leaders. It was their pride. They longed for prestige. They longed for honor from one another. They wanted other people to, to look at them and elevate them. And Jesus rebukes them often of their hypocrisy, of how they do all these things. They give to the poor to be seen. They fast to be seen. All these religious things that they do, it's just to be seen by men. Why? Because they want honor from people. And Jesus says, what you missed is the honor from God. You're so concerned about honor from people, you miss the most important honor there is. Honor from God. And you don't have any from Him because you have no relationship with Him. You just have the honor from people. Well, now Jesus calls His fifth and final witness to the stand, verses 45-47. through 47. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe Me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The fifth witness that Jesus calls to the stand is Moses. You know, and this one would have been maybe the biggest blow to the religious leaders, kind of turning and, and now accusing them. Because he's just saying, I'm not the one who's going to accuse you. Moses himself. The one that you have all this trust in. The one that you come back, oh, this is the hero of our faith. He's going to accuse you. Well, how is he going to accuse you? Well, Jesus says, because Moses wrote about me. If you believed him, you'd believe me. Well, why? He wrote about me. If you truly believed Moses and truly believed his writings, then you'd be the first ones to believe in me because Moses spoke of me. One of the specific instances that Moses says, Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 19, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is speaking of the Messiah, of Jesus. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. This is powerful. See, Moses is saying, hey, there's going to be someone like me. God's going to raise up actually greater than me. The Messiah is going to come. Him you need to listen to. Him you need to hear. And for those of you who don't, there's going to be problems. And Jesus is saying, if you really listen to Moses, you would believe me. I'm the one he spoke of. But you're not listening to Moses. And now you're going to suffer what Moses warned you about. When you won't listen to the Messiah, the consequences are eternal. So Jesus shares six powerful claims about himself which clearly show his equality with God, the Father, and his works, his will, his knowledge, his ability to impart life and raise the dead, his authority to judge, and his honor. And then he takes these six powerful claims and he calls five witnesses to the stand to support the claims that he just made. God the Father, John the Baptist, his own works, the Scriptures themselves, and Moses. And then he ends his defense. And now you've got the religious leaders who have to absorb what he just said, have to come to a conclusion of, do we believe what Jesus has said? Do we believe his claim to be God? And as you, the jury, you have to come to your own verdict. 
Do you believe what Jesus claims about himself? Do you believe that the testimonies that he brought forth are true? Weigh the evidence. Decide whether it's true or false. But recognize it's a sobering decision. For the verdict you reach about Christ is a serious one. The answer to the question, who is Jesus, is quite literally a matter of life and death. Your life and your death. Because what someone chooses to believe about that, whether they believe the truth of what Jesus says than what the Scriptures say, or something false of all these other lies that people claim of who Jesus was, that's going to have an eternal ramification. If you believe that He is God, the Savior of the world, which the Scriptures tell us, you'll have eternal life with Him in heaven. If you believe anything else, oh, he's a good person, he's a prophet, he's this, he's that, but he's not the Son of God, he's not the Savior of the world. Well, guess what? A belief in that Jesus is a false belief that does not save and ultimately damns you to hell. Now, if you've already come to the conclusion that Jesus is God, make sure you share the verdict that you've come to with others. There are so many people out there who need the true answer to this question. Who is Jesus? And maybe many of them think they know the answer. Maybe many of them think, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I know he's just a good guy. Or I know he's a good teacher. Oh, I know he's a prophet. Or I know he's this or that. No, that's not who he is. Let me tell you who he is. Let me explain to you who he is. Let me share with you the evidence that has convinced me. Let me share with you my testimony of what he's done in my life. If you're already convinced, understand there are many who are not. And take this truth and share it with those who don't know it. You know, one of the countries that desperately needs the truth of the answer, who is Jesus, is China. And Priscilla, she's about to move there. She's going to be teaching English, doing some other things. But I just want to close this morning. This is her last Sunday before she is going to move off to China. Uh, and I'd ask her to come on up and let's have the elders come up. And, and I just want to take some time just to pray for her. Pray for God to use her. Pray for her safety there. Uh, and that the Lord would use her in a powerful way because there are so many people who need the answer to the question, who is Jesus, in a place where many don't know. But uh, we're going to have uh, the elders pray. And I also just want to open it up. If any of you uh, would like to just lift up Priscilla in prayer, uh, we want to encourage you to do that. Uh, and then uh, I'll close us in prayer.